I ask you, if you would, to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Revelation chapter 7 as we continue to work our way through this uh, majestic book. And once you have that, if you're able, I'd ask you to stand with me. We're going to read the first eight verses together. Uh, I will read them for us. Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 to 8. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, restraining the four winds of the earth, so that no wind could blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel rising up from the east who had the seal of the living God. And he cried out in a loud voice to the four angels who were allowed to harm the earth and the sea. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we seal the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites, 12,000 sealed from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 sealed from the tribe of Benjamin. This is God's word for us this morning. Please be seated. Amen. Well, I remember getting my first pair of glasses. I was 28 years old. My wife and I were living in Istanbul, Turkey at the time, and I had, over a few years before that time, unknowingly developed astigmatism in both eyes, and so it became increasingly difficult to read. And so I thought, well, the time is now to go to the doctor, and I did that. And I got a, my first pair of glasses, and I realized in that moment that a pair of glasses can be a really powerful thing. You know, if you have a pair of glasses and the prescription's wrong, you won't be able to see anything. Everything's going to be fuzzy, out of focus. But when you get a pair of glasses with the right prescription, everything all of a sudden becomes crystal clear. You're able to see everything incredibly well. And that's how it was for me when I walked out of the doctor's office and I was able to see what I had been missing the world was in focus again. Now, that's a picture this morning of something that happens with our hermeneutics. That word hermeneutics, not everyone knows that word. A word hermeneutics, it is simply a system or method of interpreting the Bible. Uh, these are the principles or the methods that we use in order to interpret the Bible correctly. And just as putting on a pair of glasses enables you to see clearly Using the right hermeneutic allows you to understand God's Word correctly. And that's where we get into problems with the book of Revelation. Because good and well-intentioned, faithful men and women who love Jesus disagree with one another about the proper hermeneutics to use to understand this book. So they all agree that the Bible is God's inspired Word. They all want to study it. They want to be those that show themselves approved by studying God's Word rightly. And so they do that, but they disagree with one another about hermeneutics, about the right way to study the book. So some evangelical, many evangelical commentators would argue that we should interpret Revelation literally whenever possible. Uh, a phrase that's been used is this, when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, Seek no other sense. Many of you have heard that. And so the argument is that you should take the words at face value, literally, whenever possible, 
unless the context determines that you should not do that, but you should seek another meaning. Now, other evangelical commentators say our starting point should be to interpret the book of Revelation symbolically. So one commentator put it this way. The popular approach to Revelation, interpret literally, unless you're forced to interpret symbolically, should be turned on its head. Instead, the programmatic statement about the book's precise mode of communication is that the warp and wolf of it is symbolic, so that the preceding dictum should be reversed to say, interpret symbolically unless you are forced to interpret literally. And you see, others fall somewhere between those two polar opposite opinions. You see the problem. There's more than one uh, set of lenses for the glasses. And the lens you use is going to uh, dramatically impact the way you understand this book. So think about the passage we're looking at this morning. 144,000 from the tribes of Israel that are sealed. Now, many would say that this should be interpreted basically literally, so that these would be actual Jews living at the end of time who are sealed by God for the sake of being protected. Uh, others would say that the 144,000 should be interpreted symbolically for the church. So we're going to need God's grace to rightly identify the 144,000. But that said, my prayer this morning for our church, because believe it or not, we've got people on both ends of the spectrum in Christ fellowship. My prayer this morning as we study God's word is that we would keep the main truth that this passage teaches us in focus, that we would focus our hearts on what God clearly says to us. You see, whether you believe that this passage is teaching 144,000 literal Jewish believers at the end of time, or that the 144,000 is symbolic and should be understand to, or understood to represent the church. Uh, well, either way, the main point of this passage is it's crystal clear, and that's that God protects his people. That God is a God who seals them. God is a God who owns his people and keeps them safe from ultimate harm. And so while we're going to talk about, and I'm going to explain to you as best I can, my understanding of this passage, I want us to keep that central truth before our eyes that our God owns his people, we belong to him, and so he protects us. And there's so much encouragement there. So we're continuing our study in the book of Revelation. Two weeks ago, we studied chapter 6, and we looked at the seals. And in the first four seals, as I taught, I believe we're seeing the story of violence and conflict and suffering that has marked the last 2,000 years of human history. And then in the fifth seal, you see the cry of the martyrs because history has also been marked by persecution against the people of God and they're crying out for ultimate justice. And then in the sixth seal, you see God answer those prayers and judgment finally falls. It's a weighty chapter. Really, the chapter sets the stage for the rest of the book and, and for the kind of the unveiling of God's end-time agenda for the history of the world, uh, which includes the judgment of his enemies and the salvation of his people. And here's the best part of all, the establishment of his kingdom, which never, ever ends. For the rest of the book, that's what we're going to be seeing. Beginning in chapter 8 with the breaking of the seals, we're going to begin to unpack this in a way that is quite vivid and powerful. We're going to see that God's enemies will assault God's people, but we're going to see that Jesus wins. And if you want to understand the central theme of Revelation, it's Jesus wins. 
and we win in him. Now, before we get to chapter 8, we find ourselves in chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7 is really an interlude between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. And in this chapter, we see two visions. In verses 1 to 8, we see a vision of 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel, and they're sealed by God. The second vision is of a great gathering of people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, gathered in heaven for the sake of worshiping God as they stand before the throne. Now, in my understanding, these are two visions of the same group of people. These are two visions of the same group of people, but from two different perspectives. The first vision, which we're going to study this morning, shows us God's people will be protected during the tribulation. The second vision, which Lord willing will study next week, it shows us that God's people will be triumphant even if they die during the tribulation. Now, I use that word tribulation. What do I mean? My understanding is that the tribulation will be the last seven years of human history. It will be a time of great turmoil and trouble, really unprecedented trouble on the earth. And yet in the midst of it, we see that God is completely sovereign, completely in control, and he cares for his own. Now, with that in mind, let's dive into these eight verses of chapter 7, the first eight verses. As, uh, as I'm doing this, we're going to begin, as we have, we're going to do kind of an exposition of the text, and then we're going to focus our heart on one key truth. So this is a one-point sermon that might last a long time. The one key truth from Revelation 7, verses 1 to 8, is that God graciously protects his people. God graciously protects his people. Let's look at the passage together, verses 1 to 8. Look at verse 1. What do you expect to see in verse 1? Coming out of, out of chapter 6 in this sixth seal, well, you expect to see the seventh seal opened. That's what you expect. But instead, we find ourselves in this interlude between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. Now, why is this interlude here? Why are these two visions given to us? Well, looking at the flow of the book, I believe these two visions are given to us to answer the question that is asked at the end of chapter 6. Uh, when the ungodly cry out in fear and they say this, fall on us and hide us. They're talking to the mountains. Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Because the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Now that's the question. Who is able to stand? Despite the ferocity of the Antichrist and those who follow him, despite the devastations that will fall upon the earth, as a result of God's end-time judgments, the answer that these two visions give us is that God's people will be able to stand. God's people will be able to endure. Even if they die, they triumph. That's what we're seeing. We're being prepared by God ahead of time. Even though much of the book is going to be weighty, we're being reminded before we get there that God is in control. Now look at verse 1. John says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, restraining the four winds so that no wind could blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Now John might have seen uh, four literal angels holding back four literal winds so that the earth for a time was still. 
but I don't think we should understand this vision in that kind of a literal way. For instance, the phrase, the four corners of the earth, it doesn't really teach us that the earth is square and that the angels were standing at its four corners. Instead, of course, we would understand, and I think everyone here would understand, that this is simply a figure of speech. Uh, it's a figure of speech that we all use. You talk about the whole world, but you designate the whole world in terms of the four corners or the four points of the compass, north, south, east, and west. But I do believe the phrase, the four winds, is more clearly symbolic. Uh, in the Old Testament, winds, and specifically the four winds, were often used in a context of God's judgment. So, for instance, Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 36, God promises to send the four winds against the nation of Elam in order to judge that nation. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 2, the four winds of heavens are what stirred up the ocean so that the four beasts come out of the sea in order to rise and to pursue their mission of worldwide conquest. And in other places, you see the east wind bringing judgment as well. Now, as chapter 7 begins, we expect God's judgment to immediately break forth. But at the beginning of this chapter, we see that actually before that happens, something else has to happen. And God is using these angels, holding back these winds, this picture here, to show us that something else must happen. What must happen? Well, until this thing happens, all the world will be still until God accomplishes his purpose. So what's that something else? Look in verse 2 and 3. Then I saw another angel rising up from the east who had the seal of the living God. He cried out in a loud voice to the four angels who were allowed to harm the earth and the sea. Don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we seal the servants of our God on their foreheads. So what's the context? The context is that judgment is coming. But for a time, it's going to be restrained. The angels, as it were, are holding back the winds of God's judgment until the people of God, the servants of God, are sealed. So what you see there in verse 2, another angel rises from the east. He had the seal of the living God with which to seal these servants of God. Now, a seal in the first century is most likely something like a signet ring. So if they wanted to take a document and you wanted to seal it to show your ownership and also to provide protection for that document, you would drop some wax on the kind of the edge there where you could hold the scroll together. And then you would take the ring and you would press it into the wax, leaving your seal there, showing that you own that document and therefore that document is under your protection. That's what a seal does. It denotes ownership. It denotes protection. And that is what this sealing of the servants indicates here as well. By sealing the servants of God, the angels were indicating that these ones, these servants are under the protection of God. Now, there's some Old Testament background for this as well. There's a picture that we see in Ezekiel chapter 9 that's very, very similar. Uh, another kind of sealing, if you will. In Ezekiel 9, the prophet Ezekiel saw a vision of an angel going throughout the city of Jerusalem. He was commanded by God to go through the city and put a mark on the foreheads of everyone who was sighing and grieving because of the idolatry that was taking place in Jerusalem. And when they received the mark, what they received was God's protection because later God sends executioners into the city, but those ex executioners do not touch the ones who have received the mark. 
That's the idea here in chapter 7, verses 2 and 3 as well. The seal of God would be placed on his servants so that those who were sealed would not be harmed by the coming judgments of the tribulation. Instead, they would be protected by God. Now, we don't have to wonder what the seal was because we actually find out what the seal was in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 1. Here we see the 144,000 there again. They're standing now with Jesus on Mount Zion. Each one has a seal on their foreheads. And what is the seal? Well, it's the name of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus. And it's also the name of the Father, of His Father, which is God the Father. Now, we shouldn't think of this, again, as some kind of like physical tattoo that would have been on their foreheads. Instead, what we're being told here with this language is that these 144,000 are servants of God who belong to God, and therefore they are under the protection of God. Now, we're going to talk about this more in a bit, but we should be, brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, you should be encouraged by this sealing, because think about Ephesians chapter 1. In verse 13 and 14, what does it teach us there? That those of us who are in Christ have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And the idea is the same. It's analogous. The idea is that we are owned by God and we are under His protection. That we belong to Him. And that means that nothing bad can enter our lives apart from God's sovereign permission. That picture of Job in the Old Testament is an important one because it's a picture of my life and your life. So if you're struggling with some trial... You're, you're not struggling with something that God's unaware of or doesn't care about. Actually, he's permitted it and you can trust him. And he's working out his purposes in it. And you're even being protected through the midst of it, even though it is painful. And some trials are desperately painful. They are. But God intends it for our good. And one day we're going to see that. And he intends it for his glory. And one day we're going to see him glorified in the midst of or because of the sufferings that we endured. Now look, if you will, at verses 4 to 8. Let's look at this 144,000 a little more closely. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites, 12,000 sealed from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, and 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 sealed from the tribe of Benjamin. So here, John hears the number of those who have been sealed. It adds up to 144,000. And when you look at this census, you see that it's made up of 12,000 individuals from, 12 of, or from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, the tribe of Judah comes first, which is surprising because Judah is not the firstborn. But Judah is the one through whom the Messiah comes. And he's the one who receives this place of being mentioned first because Jesus Christ is the line of the tribe of Judah. Reuben comes second. Well, Reuben was the firstborn, but he lost his birthright because of his sexual immorality. Surprisingly, Gad and then Asher and then Naphtali, who are the sons of Jacob's concubines, Bilhan Zilpah, they come next. Except notice that Joseph's son Manasseh has now replaced Dan, and Dan isn't listed in this census or in this list. And then the remaining children of Leah and Rachel, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin, they round out the list. And all in all, 
the angel seals, 12,000 from each of these 12 tribes, and it equals 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites. Now, there's a lot there. So looking at this passage this morning, I want us to ask three questions before we move on. The first question that we are all, I think, asking is, are the 144,000 sealed from the 12 tribes of Israel to be understood literally or symbolically? Many interpret the 144,000 literally. They would understand them to represent a Jewish remnant that will be alive at the time of the end. And they will be converted to faith in the Messiah, probably because of a rapture that occurs. And the church is suddenly raptured out uh, prior to the tribulation. And the common belief is that these 144,000 believing Jews will act as evangelists. And they will lead many to faith in Christ during the tribulation. This is a possible and orthodox interpretation of this passage. Many of you sitting here this morning hold that as your interpretation and understanding of this passage. That said, I, I personally don't believe we should interpret the 144,000 literally. Now, if you are more literal in your understanding of Revelation, don't despair because I'm a bit of an odd duck. And there will be times when I'm going to interpret things literally, and it won't match with what other th people think. And just pray for me and pray that the Lord will help me uh, do the best that I can because... There's a lot in the book of Revelation. Again, we want to keep our eyes focused on the main things. But let me explain to you why I believe the 144,000 should be interpreted symbolically. Uh, why I think that we're being given here a comforting picture, a picture that God declares he will protect his people. The first is a practical reason. So a practical reason. In 70 AD, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the armies of Rome. And the temple housed all the genealogical records of the people of Israel, which means for the last 2,000 years, we don't know who belongs to whom as it relates to the 12 tribes of Israel, which means for the past 2,000 years, the tribes of Israel have been intermarrying with one another without knowing who belongs to whom. And so, in my opinion, the vast likelihood is that the people of Israel over the last 2,000 years have become homogenized as opposed to readily distinguishable as 12 separate tribes. In other words, I think it's very unlikely that there are still 12 separate tribes of Israel, which could be sealed in a literal way. That's the practical reason. There's a theological reason. It is very understandable that many who embrace the literal where possible hermeneutic would expect God to be working at the people or in the people of Israel at the end of time because there are many prophecies that are Jewish-centered prophecies that you see in the Old Testament which speak of God acting among the people of Israel at the end of time. So that makes sense. Passages like Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 65 and Ezekiel 38 and 39 and Zechariah 14 all point to this future kind of God's agenda for the people of Israel. Israel. But that being said, we need to keep in mind that something happened in the New Testament and it was completely unexpected. It was unexpected. God had an agenda that comes to the forefront in the New Testament that was not foreseen in the Old Testament. Uh, none of the Old Testament prophets were able to discern it. Jesus' own Jewish disciples didn't realize that it was going to happen. They did not expect that Jesus' mission was to create a new people of Jewish and Gentile believers and bring them together into one body. But that's what the New Testament teaches. 
That's what Paul says very, very clearly. And Paul calls this a mystery, something that hadn't been revealed before, but now has been revealed in Christ. Listen to what he says in Ephesians 2, verses 14 and 15. For he, that's Jesus, he is our peace who has made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he, what, listen, might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. And so in Christ, what happens is you have two peoples that have now been joined together, and they're not just a mix. Now there's something new. Now it's the church. Now God's working in this group of people, and this group of people is international. But to take a literal reading of the 144,000 as specifically Jewish seems, in my opinion, to reverse course and to make race, ethnicity, being Jewish, a defining point of emphasis in the book of Revelation, listen, as if God's end-time agenda is specifically Jewish. And, And I don't think it is. Next week, we're going to see another vision. And in that vision, we're going to see people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language gathered around the throne. What is God's end-time agenda? It is for His bride, the church, and His bride consists of Jewish and Gentile believers, all of whom have been made one new people in Christ. And so, in my understanding, it seems best to interpret the 144,000 as symbolic for the church. Third, there's a textual reason. Look at verses 4 and 8 again. So you've got the practical reason. You've got the theological reason. Now I want to give you a textual reason, verse 4 and 8. So here we have this census or list of the 12 tribes of Israel. But notice that this list is unlike any of the other censuses you see of the tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. Notice, for instance, that the tribe of Dan is altogether omitted. And the tribe of Ephraim is omitted as well, except Ephraim seems to have been replaced by Joseph. But Joseph was the father of both Ephraim and Manasseh, and Manasseh replaces Dan. So this is, we would all admit, an unusual census. We would all admit that this is unusual. Here's my question. Why is it irregular? Now, good answers can be given. And really, that's what I want you to understand. Uh, Christ Fellowship, this is what's so important for this church to understand Good and well-intentioned, thoughtful, Jesus-loving people can disagree on this. You really can. So why is it irregular? Well, people can give good reasons why they think it's irregular. So why is Dan missing? Why is Ephraim missing? Why does Joseph replace Ephraim? Why does Manasseh replace Dan? Perhaps, just perhaps, the irregularities of this census are here to show us that the list isn't intended to be taken literally after all, but instead as symbolic. Now listen to how George Ladd put it. He said, no satisfactory explanation, I think you'd have to put a caveat, according to George Ladd, of this irregular list of names has been offered, unless it be this. John intends to say that the 12 tribes of Israel are not really literal Israel, but the true spiritual Israel, the church. Friends, while the literal interpretation of the sealing of the 144,000 is both possible and orthodox, I do not believe that we should understand the 144,000 in that way. I think we should understand this vision to be symbolic, something that 
the Lord is trying to help us understand about his people, the church, I think we should see this as a comforting picture of God's protection of his people during the tribulation. There's a second question. How are we to understand the number 144,000 itself? Why 144,000? Why not 5,000? Why not 2.3 million? Why 144,000? Now, from a literal hermeneutic, in my opinion, there's no clear reason why the Lord should use 12,000 as opposed to 200 or 5,000 or 20,000. But if we understand the number symbolically, I think it makes sense. So in 144,000, the number 12, which is the number of the tribes of Israel, the Old Testament people of God, it's both squared and multiplied by 1,000, both of which are, are, are ways of talking about completeness, fullness. And I think that's the idea here. I think the idea, this picture here of these 12 tribes representing the people of God, and I believe representing the people of God for all times, the idea is that God protects all of his people. He protects them all despite the difficulties and trouble of the tribulation. There's a third question. Does God have no future plans for the people of Israel? I think people are probably, some people are asking that question right now. The answer is he does. Uh, I cannot read Romans 9 through 11. Any other way, it makes it very clear that God has an agenda for his Old Testament people. He has future plans for them. The Bible teaches that the day is coming when a vast majority, if not all, of the Jews, of the people of Israel, will turn from their rejection of Jesus as their Messiah, and they will instead embrace him as their Messiah. Listen to what Romans eleven twenty five and 27 says. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As you read through Romans 11, Israel all the way through seems to me must be referring to the ethnic people of Israel. God has a plan for the future for his Old Testament people. Now, what exactly his Old Testament, or excuse me, what exactly his agenda for his Old Testament people is, is less clear, and there's disagreement about that. But it is very possible that the entire nation of Israel will turn to faith in Christ, perhaps as a result of the persecution of the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, and the faithful evangelism of other believers. But what is clear is that God is not done with his Old Testament people, and we should pray for them, and we should share the gospel with them, and we should strive to see them put their faith in Jesus, who is the Messiah. Now, having looked at that passage, I want us to spend our remaining time together this morning uh, by focusing or in focusing our hearts on the one key truth that this passage teaches us. So again, God graciously protects his people. Look at verse 2 and 3. Then I saw another angel rising up from the east who had the seal of the living God. He cried out in a loud voice to the four angels who were allowed to harm the earth and the sea. Don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we seal the servants of our God on their foreheads. So we've spent a lot of time this morning wrestling through hermeneutics, uh, principles of interpretation. We've done that on purpose because we want to try to understand what is at stake 
But I don't want us this morning to miss the forest for the trees. I want us to think about, okay, what is the main point of this passage? What is God trying to teach us in this passage? So you may understand the 144,000 to be referring to uh, literal Jews that will be alive at the end of time. Or like me, you may understand the 144,000 to be symbolic for the church as a whole. Either way, again, the point of this passage is crystal clear, and it's that God protects his people. That's the truth that we are left with. So over the next several months, we're going to study the violence of the Antichrist, and we're going to study kind of the the weight of the pouring out of God's judgment on the world. It's going to lead to great and awesome devastation. It will impact all of nature. It will impact humanity in vast proportions. But as we study these things, we never have to be afraid. Why? Because we've already learned that God protects his people. Uh, If God has to still all creation, holding back the winds of his judgment as it were in order to do so, he will do so. So yes, will believers die during the tribulation? The answer to the Bible is yes, they will. But they will never suffer ultimate harm because God keeps them. And their souls are safe with God. You do see a beautiful picture of this, I believe, in Revelation chapter 14. Now, if you know the book of Revelation at all, you know that Revelation chapter 13 uh, is when kind of the, uh, the work of the Antichrist, uh, the, the beast that rises from the sea, the man of lawlessness, I believe it's referring to all the same person, when he does his worst and unleashes massive destruction on those who are following Jesus and slaughters many of those uh, who refuse his mark. But then the very next chapter, chapter 14, what do you see? You see 144,000, now where? Standing on Mount Zion with Jesus. You see, the point is, not one has been lost. They're protected. Uh, They're under God's sovereign protection. He protects his people. So let's meditate on that a little bit. How does God protect his people? And I do think this this is so practical. Because if you're a human, you you suffer from fear. And we fear different things. Some of us fear other people. We are terrified of what other people think of us. Some of us fear not having enough. Uh, We we constantly are worried because we just, we look at our money and we just, how is this ever going to work out? Some of us are terrified of health. We've been discipled for the last two years as a culture to be very afraid of our health. Some of us are very afraid of our health. There's a lot of different ways that we give in to fear, and yet where in the Bible are the people of God commanded to fear? Where? Is there any verse in the Bible where we're commanded to be afraid other than fear the Lord? Right? That's the one place. So all of the other fears that so tempt us to to really worship them by God's grace, can be put to death even now if by faith, by God's grace from the heart, we embrace the reality that God protects his people. We will go to heaven much more happily if we trust God. So how does he, how does he help his people? How does he protect his people? He protects his people providentially. 
In other words, God orchestrates events in the lives of his people so that they are protected from harm. I'm reminded of the story of a French Huguenot. So in 1562, the French king passes a law against Huguenots. Huguenots are just Calvinistic evangelical believers that were living in France. And he said they all must die. And so his soldiers go out in order to kill, to exterminate the Huguenots. Well, one of them, a young man, was running for his life. And he found a cave and he went and he hid in the cave, assuming he was soon to die. But he turned around and when he turned around, he saw a spider and a spider at work. The spider had begun to just kind of begin to spin a web over the opening of the cave. And he continued to work, the spider did, until the cave was completely covered so that when the pursuers came, they came and looked at the mouth of the cave and what they saw was a spider's web and they assumed that there's no way anyone could have gotten into the cave. There must be no one there. And they didn't even look. When he came out, he said this. He said, where God is, a spider's web is a wall. And where God is not, a wall is but a spider's web. God never runs out of ways to protect his own. And if we had time this morning, we could go around the room and we could talk about the ways that God has providentially protected us, either from physical harm or from spiritual harm. God also protects his people miraculously. This happens. Think of the book of Acts. Paul, he's, uh, he is uh, in a ship. He's shipwrecked. He, he makes it to land, and then he goes about collecting sticks. And unfortunately, there's a viper in the sticks, which is really unfortunate. And the viper bites him. And the natives think he's going to die. But then he doesn't die. Why doesn't he die? Because God miraculously protects him. He just shakes it off. And the natives of that island are amazed. I remember hearing about a missionary in Africa who had a, a large group of people from another tribe come and talk with him about Jesus. And he was surprised by that and asked them why all of a sudden did they want to talk about Jesus? Because they had rejected him every other time. And they said they'd been poisoning his food for the last month, but he hadn't died. <laughs> and they wanted to know about this powerful God who was able to protect him so that he didn't die. And this morning, I'm sure some of us could give stories of how God has protected us in ways that, at least to us, seem to be miraculous. And God will protect His people during the tribulation. Again, that's the main point of this passage. If you're like me, you understand the tribulation to be the last seven years of history. Uh, or perhaps you understand the tribulation to be just kind of the 2,000 years of church history. There are different views, again, represented in this church. I understand it to be the last seven years. I Bless my heart, I can't help but see it as literally seven years as I look at it. But, but before the terrors of the end time are unleashed, God gives us this comforting picture, because this is the point of this passage, of the fact that he protects his people, that he's got this, that he watches over us, that we don't have to be afraid. I think that's important because for many Christians, considering the end times is intimidating. Uh, who wants to think about some, some end time worldwide leader that it doesn't matter what your perspective on Revelation is. We all agree that there's a man of lawlessness coming. It's what the Bible teaches. We all agree on that. But to think that someone is going to be so malicious and so satanically inspired that he's going to wipe out wholesale all who will not bow the knee to him and receive his mark, well, that's intimidating. And you think about the fierceness of the judgments of God, which, according to my understanding of Revelation, are going to be poured out. Looking at that, that's intimidating. And the fact that all of this, at least from my perspective, seems close at hand, is intimidating as well. Now, friend, I don't know the day or the hour, but I sure do see a lot of birth pangs as I look around the world. There's a lot of wars and rumors of wars and a lot of earthquakes and a lot of famines and a lot of sufferings and all the things that Jesus looks at his disciples and says, don't be alarmed, 
they're the beginning of the birth pangs. There's a lot of that going on. But again, brothers and sisters, we don't have to be overwhelmed because God is sovereign. He's all-powerful. He's in control. He's on the throne. He will protect his people even during the last and most violent period in human history. So as we study this book together, we don't have to be overwhelmed, but instead we can be confident and we can focus our hearts on the main, the main point of revelation. Jesus wins. And we win with him. We win with him. Finally, God will protect his people forever. Isn't that beautiful at the end of Revelation? Revelation 21, 3 to 4. Listen, then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. And they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death will be no more, and grief and crying and pain will be no more, because the previous things have passed away. Friends, there will be no bad thing in heaven. There will only be the presence of God, and we will dwell with him. And that is what it means to be sealed by God. It means to be owned by God and protected by him to belong to the omnipotent one. Friend, my question for you is, do you belong to God? Do you belong to God? Do you have a real relationship with him? Or is your religion, you know, maybe just the religion you absorbed as a child and you continue to absorb a religion that seems like Christianity and you'll read the Bible sometime and, well, you pray sometime maybe and you go to church because that's what good people do. Friend, do you belong to God? Do you have a real relationship with him? Does it make sense to you to pray and really believe that God is listening to you? Does that make sense to you? Have you seen him answer prayer? Do you know what it is to confess sin quietly? Do you know what it is to be moved by the Holy Spirit to confess sin to others even when they didn't see you because the Spirit of God is at work in your life pointing you away from sin, which is death, and pointing you to Jesus, which is life? Do you belong to God? Do you love him? Do you love Jesus? Uh, is he just some weird religious figure that people kind of look up to? Or is he your savior and your friend, the one that you pray to and the, way that you, the one that you spend time with? Do you, do you belong to God? By birth, none of us do. You, you see, the message of the Bible is that we're born sinful and we're born separated from God. And, and sin is so tragic because it makes us feel like that's how it should be. Uh, that I should be on the throne of my life, that I should do what I want to do, that I should think the way I want to think. And so all of us have spent our lives, much of our lives, just living for ourselves. And that's what sin looks like. Uh, if your understanding of sin is that as long as you don't murder people, you're okay, friend, that's a very common understanding. We don't mock you for that. Many people believe that. Sin is a heart issue. And it is a rebellion against the authority of God in your life. It's saying, I will be God in my life and I will do what I want. That's the essence of sin. And it leads us to break all of the commands of the Bible. And it leads us to hurt others in countless ways as well. And all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so by birth, listen, no one belongs to God. We're separated from him because of our sin. Which means we need a savior. Uh, something has to change. Something has to change. And it's not religion. It's not religious observances. What has to change is you must be born again. You must receive the life of God within. How can that happen? It happened this way 2,000 years ago. God came into this world. 
Uh, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, came into this world on a mission, and the mission was specifically to live a perfect life, to fulfill all of the Old Testament commandments that none of us can fulfill, to love the Lord as God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then his mission was to lay down his life on the cross as a sacrifice, bearing in himself the wrath of God against the sins of all who would turn from their sins and trust in him. And that's what he did. He died on purpose. Yeah, they thought they were killing him, but that was his mission to die. And he died. And then three days later, he rose from the dead. And now, friend, there's a way to belong to God. And it has nothing to do with good behavior or being a Christian-y person or knowing Bible verses or singing songs on Sunday morning. It has everything to do with repenting and believing turning away from your sins, saying, I don't want to live for myself anymore. God, forgive me for the ways I've set myself on the throne of my heart. And by putting your trust in Jesus, the one and only Savior. You see, this is an exclusive message. We're saying, it sounds audacious in this day, but we're saying that Jesus is the only way. He's the only way. And we're saying that he's a willing Savior. He's not only the only Savior, he's a willing Savior. So even this morning, he will receive you if you will turn from your sins and cry out for mercy and ask him to save you. And here's what happens when you do that. Uh, All of your sins are forgiven. That's an amazing thing. And you're clothed, as it were, with the righteousness of Christ, which, which just means that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your failure anymore. He sees Jesus's perfect life as if you lived it. It's a gift given to you, as if it's a gift, and you belong to him. You see, you become a part of the people of God, and so you come under the protection of God. So for eternal days, you will dwell in the presence of God. And listen, it's all a gift, and it's offered to you this morning, this morning, if you will turn from your sins and put your trust in Christ. I pray you will. I pray the day will be the day when those who have hard hearts towards Jesus will repent. I pray that today will be the day when those who've just been going to church their whole life, because that's what they do, they'll understand actually a relationship with God is necessary. I'm praying that today is the day, friend, that you will see Jesus for who he is, a willing Savior, and you'll put your trust in him. I'm praying that way because it's beautiful and it's freely offered to you in Christ this morning. Well, friends, we've looked at this passage. It's a challenging passage. We've seen the first Two visions of Revelation 7, we've seen how God seals his people, showing his ownership of them and his commitment to protect them. And Lord willing, next week we're going to look at a second vision, uh, I believe a vision of the same group, but in a different location. Before they were being protected, even in the midst of suffering, now they are triumphant in heaven. And Lord willing, at the conclusion of the service next week, uh, 20 or 25 minutes after, we're going to have an open time of Q&A. And you'll be able to ask any question you'd like about Revelation 7 or 6 or 5 or 4 as we're about a third of the way through the book. And so if you have some questions about what you've heard so far, it's an opportunity for you just to ask questions and we can open the Bible together. Let's pray.